And you jump in at the book of Leviticus. Good on ya. It's a bloody technical book. And yet of all of the chapters that we're going to look at, none could be more pertinent to that aspect of why as this one. So if you don't have a Bible, and Jeffrey, we're probably on the cusp of a couple, we've, uh, a couple uh, foldbacks here. About right there. And uh, about right there. That doesn't make sense to the rest of you. That's okay. Thank you. All right. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We're going to get one to you. Open it up to the third book of the Bible, which is the book of Leviticus chapter 4. This is a technical book for the Levitic. The Levites were a tribe of Israel. They served as priests. And in we are now chronologically, Moses has left the land of Egypt. They did that in chapter 12, 13 of the book of Exodus. They have made their way to Mount Sinai, where they have, or Sinai, where they have now received the Ten Commandments and the blueprints for the tabernacle. It isn't just that God said, now that I got you away, here's a bunch of laws. It's like, now that I've gotten you out of that place of bondage, out of the hand of the enemy, the very next thing is, now I want to be able to kind of create some boundaries so you don't go back to that. And the land you're going in, by the way, that I'm inserting you into, has its own traps and snares. And I want to be able to set boundaries so you don't find yourself in those traps and snares also. So it wasn't just God says, now that I got you out, here's my new laws. But understand, from that point on, he starts to develop. It's like, well... Now that we're there, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. That's Exodus 25. That's the whole point is that God, since Eden, hasn't dwelt among his people. But to dwell among his people, there's a cover charge because blood must be shed because we're sinners. And that's what we're going to get to in our text. So from, from in the book of Exodus, then from chapter 25 through the end of the book, chapter 40, what you have then are the blueprints and some social laws that the, the, this tabernacle gets erected. And as the tabernacle gets erected, God comes and he fills the tabernacle. And that's the end of the book of Exodus. The book of Leviticus then starts with God speaking from the tabernacle. He's spoken from the mountain. He's spoken to Moses and through Moses. But now God is speaking in the tabernacle to the people. That's a pretty radical thought. We know that it is from the first month of the second year, so they've been out a year now, and the book of Numbers will begin in the second month of the second year. So that tells us that it's a month time period in the book of Leviticus. That's what we're looking at. It's something that takes place roughly a month. Because the last book ended, and the next book starts within a month of each other. During this time, God is speaking to the people, and he wants to get some things straight. And the first nine, ten chapters really focus on the priesthood. And in that time, those first seven chapters focus on five specific sacrifices. Of those sacrifices we've gone through now, (coughs) excuse me, we've gone through three of them. We've gone through the burnt or the morning and evening sacrifice. We've gone through the grain sacrifice and then the peace offering, which was our last one. My personal favorite in the sense that two people that were once enemies, then they reconcile. It isn't just that they reconciled. They reconciled, split an animal. They, they, they sort of dismembered this animal. And then they cooked up a barbecue with the parts that you wouldn't eat. You know, the parts that you wouldn't eat unless you're Scottish. Those parts get burnt. 
And the rest of it gets barbecued, and the two people and their families eat together. And God has this really, he's got this big deal about eating, which I don't know about you, I'm personally okay with, but then our nickname is Calorie Chapel, so that works. But, but understand the idea of eating together is kind of a key thing, but the whole world gets to see that the two people who were once enemies of each other are now supping together. They're putting themselves in the same family this way. And that's going to come and play into our text here as we now look at our fourth of the five, and that is the one of the sin offering. So let's read through it, and then we're going to pray, and I can't wait to develop it. It's going to be lots of fun. Uh, in Leviticus 4, 1 says this now. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, for instance, and then he's got a list of four different people groups, so to speak. If First is, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, well then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the bull of the bull at the base of the altar, the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall take from it then all of the fat of the bull as the sin offering. The fat which covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the two, ki- on the, uh, entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that's on them by the flanks. The fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove as it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering. And notice that's what he refers to. Do this like you did what you did the, fa- the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the bull's hide and all its flesh, with its head and legs and entrails and offal. Does anyone know what offal is? It's poop. And so you could say, yeah, that's awful. Um, the whole, there you go. The bull shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out and it shall be burned. Now the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally. Now this is our second group in this. The first was the anointed priest. Now we have the whole congregation. And the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord, and anything which should not be done and are guilty. When the sin when which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin, and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood, to the tabernacle of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil, like he did in the first case. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, and that's, of course, the, um, the altar of incense, which is in the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar, and he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering, Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. Did you notice, by the way, that that sort of base offering is the one the high priest does or the, the anointed priest? 
And he goes, now here's some small variations now in these sort of groups. But he goes, even in this one, the high priest should know, the anointed priest should know, hey, I want you to relate to the people because when you do this, you've already done one for yourself. The Lord just assumes that the anointed priest is going to be doing that so much so that when a person comes, he, all he has to know now are the little variations for each group because he's like, I assume you already know what you're doing here. Now, the third group is a ruler. And it says in verse 22, when the ruler has sinned, and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God in anything which should not be done and is guilty, or if his sin in which he's committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat, kill it at the place and where they killed a burnt offering before the Lord, it's a sin offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, pour the blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, and he shall burn its fat on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin and it shall be forgiven him. Last group. And if any of the common people sins unintentionally. And by the way, the idea of any one, because we saw with the second group it was the nation. Now we see any individual sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done in his guilty or if his sin in which he's committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female, that's unique to this, without blemish, for his sin in which he is committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the burnt offering, of the altar of burnt offering, and pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat, as fat removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. But if they, can't, if they don't bring a goat, they're going to bring a lamb. If he brings a lamb as a sin offering, he shall bring, notice as well, a female without blemish. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering, and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of his burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat. The fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering the same way. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him that he has committed the sin, his sin that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Lord, thank you for this beautiful chapter. And I know reading this through, perhaps there may be some who are going, what have I gotten myself into? And yet, Lord, you are so good and you know how to speak fluent us. There's nobody in this room, Lord, you don't know how to speak to. And so I pray for every person here, Lord, that we will have ears to hear, hearts to receive, eyes to see, minds to grab a hold of and ascertain. And Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be so clearly prevalent here that you would bring conviction, that you would bring clarity. And Lord, that we'd have so much fun in your word that it would burst open and come alive before us right now. And Lord, in that, that you would powerfully minister to each of us now, I pray. So Lord, you know every speck of dust under our shoes. You know every vapor of water in our breath. You know every hair on our head or those that used to be there. You know every thought we think from afar, Lord. You know every beat of our heart and even to our last breath. You've numbered our days and you've collected our tears in a bottle. You are such a personal and intimate God. And so have your way now, I pray. Minister profoundly in this time. 
And God, I just love you. I just love you so much. And I thank you for the privilege it is to serve you. And the joy it is to call this home as much as there is a home on earth. And thank you, Lord, that it's us, Lord. It's these people that I get to call home more than than a place. Not because it's near Big Ben or it's off the Thames or whatever, Lord, but rather because you've assembled us together. And when you're among us, Lord, as you are when we're gathered in your name, it's home as much as there's going to be here. And I thank you for that. So bless this time. Anoint me, Lord. Come over and upon me in such a way, Lord, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do now. That each one of us will be spoken to individually where we need to and desire to hear you, but also, Lord, corporately as a family, that you would draw us closer to you and to each other. And if there are any who have yet to say yes to you and your gift on the cross, let this day be the day of their salvation, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. You could probably say da-da-da, you know, word for word. You know, search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. See, I knew you'd say it. I have a couple crazy cousins, and I don't normally share stories like this at the beginning, but I have to when I think about this chapter. I have a couple crazy cousins. I have, a, I have my father, who's a bit on the wild side, has a brother who's a bit on the wild side, and they're sons of his. And they had moved to Wisconsin. Many of you may not know where Wisconsin is, but it's just above Chicago. They don't, those that live in Wisconsin don't like to be thought of that way. Those who live in Chicago, consider them that. And they were the sort of good old boys by the time. I don't know what happened. They were normal Chicago boys, but they moved up to, it's funny, they moved up north and they became from the south all of a sudden. It's like they became related to the duck hunters, you know, that kind of thing. They grew out their beards and they got the yeehaw in their spirit and they went and bought themselves a big old pickup truck. Now, this big old pickup truck wasn't a really heavy pickup truck. It wasn't one of like those big old con where you can carry everything. It was just a big old thing that you could climb into, but it was relatively light. It was kind of a good wind could probably blow it off the road. And as they were kind of in one of those moods and they were cranking their country music and yeeing and hawing and all that stuff, they saw this giant box in the road from afar. And it was like, kind of like, looked like a, you know, a big old empty refrigerator box or something like that. So they didn't think any of it. And, and they go, ah, oh, that's just really, and they're like thinking this is going to be like a cool Ford commercial, right? So they're, ah, and they're like stepping on the gas. And they pop over this veranda and they see it coming. And as it gets closer and closer and closer to them, they're just picking up speed, right? They're just ready to hit it. And they get to that thing and bam, they hit that thing. And inside the box was a drill press. Does anyone know what a drill press is? It like it weighs about as much as a safe. So it ripped the entire front axle off of the truck. They they the yees and the haws stopped instantly because but they didn't. And because they were too busy being the Dukes of Hazard and they were putting the hazard in the Dukes of Hazard, they both went right through the windshield. So there was the only moment where they said, I'm flying, I'm flying. And the good news is they landed in a soft veranda on the other side. Now, the, the, the thing about it is what seemed relatively harmless and even exciting from that thrill ride as they were speeding up and getting to it, and they just thought they were going to plow right through it, stopped them completely. Except for one of them who wound up breaking his pelvis as a result of landing on that soft veranda. 
To this day, he would walk with a limp because of the moment when he ran into that empty box that turned to have a drill press. Let me warn you, sin's an awful lot like that. It looks so harmless. It looks just like an empty thing that somehow you're going to plow right through and get a moment of pleasure and forget about it at the end of it all. Pull a little piece of cardboard off the side of your truck and everything just moves on like it did before. But it has a way of derailing you. It has a way of sending you through things you never thought you'd go through. And it winds up breaking you in ways you never thought. The problem with sin is we can make it so small that we could feel like what we did in the end of it all was run over a piece of the cardboard instead of run into the box. And so what happens is, is that understand from the standpoint of God, a little sin to God is like a little cancer. It's like a little AIDS. Understand that the reason is, is that it kills you according to Scripture. And what we have in this text, by the way, first of all, just flares into the face of the way that we view most of our sin. I'll be honest. Especially in this culture, thank you Carl Rogers and the others who birthed a lot of the psychotherapy. Look at the first couple of verses with me. And by the way, my, my goal will be to develop primarily the first one because the rest are simple variations on it. I think there are going to be things so perfect and profound to this, you're going to go, oh wow, really? I should really read Revelation. I'm sorry, Revelation. You should read that too. I should read Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses, by the way, God makes specific again, though he'd been speaking this whole time, because he wants to make sure you get this chapter as if something God personally spoke to you. And he says, speak to the children of Israel. If a person sins unintentionally against the commandments of the Lord, anything that ought not to be done and does any of them, and then he's going to develop these four different areas, the anointed priest, verse 1 through 12, the congregation, 13 to 21, for which he holds, by the way, the the rulers, the elders uh, liable for, and a, a ruler individually, 22 through 26, and then the common people, 27 through the end of the chapter, 35. In each one of these, he says, this is how you deal with your guilt. Don't miss that word. Listen to this point as we even start getting into these little these, these areas. If a person does something by accident or ignorantly, he's still guilty and he has to deal with the sin. Now that is so different from the world we live in. Because what the world we live in says is find out why you're a victim, label it, and then just keep doing it because now you're a victim anyway. So what difference does it make? So what happens is, you know, and it's like, think about this. You give yourself permission to kill yourself is what you've done. You're like, you know why I get drunk all the time and beat my children and go out and get chased by the police? Because my dad did it. Now, I don't doubt for a moment if your dad did it, you have actually started to learn how to sin in that behavior. But what if somebody actually had the love enough to tell you, you're done with that. You come to Christ, you're a new creation. You don't have to live a victim's life anymore. Because for some people, to be honest, they'd rather be the victim. Now, please hear me in that. The Bible says we are not born good. What the Bible says is we are born sinners. So when someone says, I was born that way, I could say, probably, you were born a sinner. Now we learn, I mean, it's sort of like a sinner trying to figure out what ways they should sin. And by the way, the way that you're raised, your parents will help you because you'll determine or you'll develop certain characteristics from your parents because you learn how to react to things from them if they've been around. And if they haven't, you'll learn how to react to things because of their absence. Now notice, by the way, that doesn't mean they didn't play a part in it. But they didn't make you a sinner. They just helped you figure out how to sin in their direction. Does that make sense? In the end of it all, if you want to play the victim card, you could blame it on Adam and Eve. But in the end of it all, God still holds you accountable for your sin. And you know what? 
in a world that still enforces any laws, it's still going to happen. If you drive 140 on the highway and someone pulls you over and you say, well, you don't understand, it was dark and the lights burnt out on my dashboard, they're not going to go, oh, you're right, you're a victim, you go right ahead. What they'll do is they'll write you a ticket for going too fast and write you a ticket for actually having the lights burn out on your dashboard. And you'd say, well, that's mean and rotten. But you go, well, I'm a victim. But in the end of it all, you still did wrong. And you have to account for it. And understand, here's the good news. Is that God doesn't want to just go, you're you're miserable, you're rotten, and you're a sinner. So I'm angry at you and I hate you. The reason why God does this is the same reason why a good doctor will actually discover what's wrong with you. Because the purpose is to cure you. And if you really, I mean, a, a lousy doctor, and you know this. Because just by a show of hands, those of you who are actually, who live in this country... How many of you have had something wrong with you? You've gone to a doctor and he was so lame, he really didn't spend the time that was necessary to figure out what the heck was wrong with you in the first place, by show of hands. Now look around. Wouldn't you call that a rotten doctor? You know, they're like, oh, you're sick. Well, you probably should just take this and walk out and I don't care if I ever see you again. I mean, you're like, well, that was rotten because I came there to be cured. The difference between that and walking into church is that you actually know you're sick when you go to the doctor. It takes a lot for me to actually go to a doctor. I mean, my finger falls off, I run over and get a twig and some tape. That's, that's what happened. And it's, and you know, it's like, and, and the reason is, is because unless I'm absolutely convinced that person's going to do something better for me than I can do myself, why spend the money? Now, please hear me on this. My great physician cares enough for you to find, to, to, point out to you where the greatest problem is. And you know, there are sometimes you could have a problem in one part of your body and it manifests in a whole bunch of others. Have you noticed that? And you could spend all your time, and by the way, a doctor who doesn't care but cares enough of himself that he doesn't want to see you again will know how to treat the symptoms so you don't come back but you never get cured. So what happens? It's like somebody that's got a problem that they're losing all of their energy because they have some form of endocrine problem like in their glands. And instead of trying to discover that through their thyroid or pituitary, they just give you energy drinks the whole time. And you're like, you're right. I feel like I have more energy for like a half hour and then I have to go sleep. And you'll think, wow, the doctor did something, but he didn't cure you. Please understand that sin separates you from a God who created you to be with him. And that's going to be the most, and because that is the most important thing to him is your relationship with him, then most certainly that's going to be the first place he's going to go for. I mean, imagine that's like, I have these sores on my legs and I don't know what that comes from. Can you get me some salve? And God, you know, and it's like God looks at you and goes, those are AIDS sores. And unless you actually get the HIV treated in your body in one manner or another, that's, that's just a symptom to tell you, to remind you, you need to be cured. But what happens if you just figured out a way to try to make so those things don't happen again? You could forget that you have it and die from it. So please hear me. This whole thing starts with something quite simple, and that is, are you willing to man or woman up enough with your sin to be honest about it? In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus walks by a guy. And it's, by the way, chapter 5 is a really cool place because there's all kinds of fives in it. And I'm not like one of those kind of people that, like, if you take every sixth letter, it spells happy birthday or something like that. You know, or you can find Shakespeare in the, you know, the Psalms. But in this chapter, by the way, Jesus is going to present five witnesses and five to a Jewish person's the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible from which they get all of their standards from. 
And please hear me in this. Jesus walks and there's a guy that's sitting lame, which means he can't get up and walk. And he's sitting there at one of five porches by a pool that gets stirred without warning. And first ones in get healed. And whether you want to argue about how the sort of origin of all of that pool situation there at a place called the House of Mercy, one thing's very evident is that guy will never be able to get healed in that situation because he doesn't have the strength to get up and get there himself, which is the whole point of laying on one of five porches. And that's the problem with the law. Is that, and by the way, every other religion is based on that. You're aware of that, right? Your performance that hopes that God will think it's good enough in the end versus this one where God did the performing and wants you to think it's good enough in the end. And understand in this, it's like God never told you, get up and walk and get into the water. Jesus looks at this man who clearly hasn't been able, and he's been there quite a long time. And he looks at this man and he says, do you want to be well? And you think, duh, why wouldn't I want to be well? Well, wait a minute, you have a lot to lose. All of your irresponsibility. But you say, well, look at I can't do anything. I'm paralytic. This is just who I am. Well, you have to walk away from that. You have to actually take responsibility for your life. And for some, to be honest, some people would rather be considered disabled for the rest of their life because then you don't have to take responsibility. But the moment you're cured and well, someone's like, so what are you going to do with your life now? Let's be honest. Addictions can do that easily. People that have been abused in one manner or another in their young life, you can build a whole camp around that and then give yourself excuse to kill yourself slowly for the rest of your life because of it. But in the end of it all, who are you punishing? Now, we haven't even developed what the situation is here, but in the beginning, we start with this. Do you even know you're a sinner? And you're like, well, that seems like such an old-fashioned word. Do you know why? Because it is. Because sin has been around since the first human being. See, it's not a new idea because it's not a new problem. It's been the same problem from the beginning. Because, see, understand, my God has been the cure for humankind since the beginning of humankind. If it's a new idea, well, then everyone before that idea has been irrelevant to the cure. Does that make sense? I mean, if someone comes up and says, I've discovered today how everyone could get well, well, what about every person before this? Because it's been with the first people, it's because God's been in love with everyone since the first person. So yeah, it's an old situation because it's a problem that's been since man. So do you even know that much? What does it mean to sin? To be honest, the word, and I think we give it kindness the way we say it, the word amiras, or amethyst, the word, by the way, means literally off post. It's a military term. You know, Charlene and John have been called to guard the door because for whatever reason. And we come back and they're sort of sitting in the other room macking on sandwiches. Clearly, they're out of post. We say it this way, to miss the mark, right? But it's like, okay, it's an archery term. You're aiming for the bullseye and you missed it. Oh, darn. But let's be honest. When you're sinning most of the time, are you actually even aiming for the thing at all? Chances are you're, you're in the opposite direction shooting at a dog. You know, and they're like, oh, you missed the mark. Yeah, it's like, okay. Oh. And you realize, it's like the bottom line is you're just not where you're supposed to be. And real sin is that you're not where you're supposed to be. And the one place you're supposed to be, you were created to be with God. God created a lap your size that was his own and offers you the chance to be there. And any place other than there is not where you belong. So this whole area now of dealing with that is exactly why we're dealing with this in the way we're dealing with it here. 
And you go, it's bloody. And I'm going to say, the blood's going to testify every bit of what this whole situation's about. Look at it with me, by the way, and let's directly address this, okay? So we address this issue, first of all, that every human being is guilty. And it tells us that, that every human being has sinned. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the Pope or Billy Graham. The bottom line is every human being has had, and here's the good news, because every human being has the same problem, there can be one cure for everyone. Does that make sense? If every human being had the same disease, well, then every human being can find the same cure. So you're like, do you really believe Jesus is the only way? He was the only one who was willing to die for me. He was the only one who qualified to die for me because he was the only one without sin. And he was the only one who offers me his salvation. So you can make your own choice up on that. Mine's made up. Verse 3. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people. Did you notice the association between this priest and how the people wind up carrying it as well? Let him offer to the Lord for his sins, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish, as a sin offering. This is where this whole thing starts. And please hear me. God has never demanded that the human being be perfect. Because once you're not, you can't choose it. I mean, how many things do you have to do wrong to be imperfect? Just one. So which one of you wants to volunteer to be perfect? Once you're not, you're not. But God has said instead, let me set it up so that you can choose a perfect sacrifice. Think that through. So let's line up every one of your options and see what you have. Buddha, Muhammad, Paramahansa Yogananda, that nutcase that sits up in Oregon right now eating apricots and telling people to get naked and run around you know, the streets. Your good works. Your church attendance. Your giving. Line them all up. Which one's perfect? Because God says, I demand a perfect sacrifice. You say, well, I'm a good person. I'm like, yeah, so you're going to stand up before the court of law and actually represent yourself? My defense attorney is Jesus, the one who paid for all my sins, who can approach the bench and say, Dad, and you want to go stand there and represent yourself? Really? So what's your sacrifice today? You know, even in the Quran, it says that Jesus was spotless without sin. And I don't call the Quran inspired. Please hear me in this. Of all of your options, one of them is perfect. Just one. And that's Jesus Christ. Of all of your options, only one of them rose from the dead. So he's still alive. And that's Jesus Christ. Of all of your options, only one volunteered himself to pay the price for your sins. And that's Jesus Christ. Of all of the options, only one of them says that they actually know you by name. And that one's Jesus Christ. Of all of your options, there's only one who we read, for the joy set before him endured the cross, and that joy was you. And that was Jesus Christ. Of all of your options, only one of them is going to stand before heaven and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord. And that one is Jesus Christ. Buddha is going to bow. Muhammad is going to bow to Jesus because there is only one name given among men 
by which we must be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, what option do you want to take? Because as you're going to go and bring an offering here, he says, you can't choose perfection as an offerer, but you can choose perfection in your offering. What perfection do you have as an option? When God says, my own son, the perfect blood of Christ, his perfect son is your option. Hey, at a point where, if you were right now about to be arrested, and if you were about to be arrested, and you were going to go then and stand before a tribunal and be shot to death for your, your crimes, and one person, and he says, look, if somebody who's committed no crimes could take your place, that would be okay. And you started looking and you realize everybody else around you has also committed crimes. And one person was found that actually hasn't, and then they were willing to take your crimes upon themselves. Would you ask for anything beyond that? Would you really say after that, whew, well, <coughs> now that I know I have one option, let's keep looking. Because at a point where you realize that death was imminent, you would be happy you had any choice at all. Does that make any sense? The amazing part isn't that Jesus is perfect, in my opinion. He's God's son. He's God the son. The amazing part to me was not that all of heaven's going to bow to him. He's God the son. The most amazing part is that he volunteered to do this anyways. Do you realize if any of these other people volunteered to do it, it still wouldn't be acceptable? Because they have their own sin to pay for. The only one equipped is the only one who volunteered. Why? Because God wants the choice to be easy. How dare I say Jesus is the only way? I think, how dare you say that you deserve any way? Because it's grace. And grace never is deserved or it's not grace. And I want it without blemish. So what happens to this animal? Follow this with me. Exodus chapter 4, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 4, third book of the Bible, verse 4. First thing he does, he shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hands on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. The first thing that he needs to do is confess his sins. The reason you put your hands on the head of that animal was so that you knew that your sins were being transferred over to that animal and this innocent animal was succumbing to you. It was succumbing to your sin in the sense of the penalty. And then you killed the animal. You didn't hand him over and said goodbye to little sheepy or in this case, big bully, and you walked away and they slaughtered this thing. You held the knife. That means you walked out of there with blood on your hands. There's no way you can slit an animal's throat and not get your hands dirty. Has anybody seen a bull, how big those things are? Have any, any idea how much blood is in a bull? And you're going to take, you're going to try to hold this bull down. And I don't care how ugly or nasty that bull looks. The moment you lay your hands on that animal and realize you are dying for me. That's really profound. This whole thing starts with a very simple thing. And that is, if we're going to deal with our sin, we have to, number one, confess it. That's what we have to do here. Because understand, this wasn't like kill the bull because I've been nasty. You specifically spoke your sins upon it. You said, I stole. 
this situation. I was on the internet and I saw this. You didn't just go, I was, you know, like how we would be like, I was a little careless. I was a little, look at when you're cutting an animal and you're killing it, you don't kind of make it like it's a little, it was a little social faux pas. Because how could you say this little thing killed this animal? Like I've had bitterness in my heart and I wish that person was dead. You know, sometimes the Lord really, he, because he is a good physician, he knows. You think, well, why does God need to hear that if he forgives it? I think you need to hear it. See, one of the things that happens when we confess our sins is that we're actually willing to listen to ourselves admit what we did. The word in the Greek for confess, homologamos, is the word homo, which means the same, and logamos, which means word saying or logic. The idea is quite simple. Confessing doesn't say, you're not going, sorry, God, and, you know, like, oops, that was a little sorry, and then you cut an animal's throat. Think how, think how weird that would look. It means your words agree with his. So when God says, it's not an affair, it's adultery, it's not a second look, it's lusting, which is fornication in your heart. It's not just a little entertaining of bitterness. It is murder in your heart to someone. Imagine it's like, well, I've just been angry with someone for a little bit and I know that I should forgive them, but I haven't. And all of a sudden you go to this bull and you say, you know what, the seed of murder is in my heart and then you killed an animal. Do you see how real that gets? I really think one of the reasons why we can live a fairly mamby-pamby life in Christ it's because we're really not willing to man up enough and confess our sin like we should and call it what it is. We kind of doll it up and pretty it up, but you can't doll it up and pretty it up when you're killing a bull in front of yourself. Do you see what I'm saying? And the bull didn't do anything to deserve this. But you're like, you know what? If I really want to see this sin off of me, I need to call it what it is. You know, the coolest part is the more that I do call it as it is, the more I appreciate his forgiveness for it. If it was just a little infraction of some sort, then I'm like, God, that's cool. You're kind of cool with me, you know. But if I realize how filthy my sin really is, I realize how powerful the blood of Christ is. Does that make any sense? So can I say in the first area, by the way, in each of these, blood will speak of something. Blood speaks about succumbing. Because when I look at this animal in front of me, it has to succumb to me as I kill it. No matter how much it's going to fight me, it's going to succumb. I will overcome it in the end. And I realize even as I deal with this, I start asking, what am I succumbing to? Am I succumbing to the will of God or am I succumbing to my sin? Because my succumbing to my sin has allowed this animal to die just like I And I realize all of a sudden I see myself as that bull. And the only difference is sin was holding the knife now for me, slitting my throat. I don't want to be there. And I can tell you this, I have watched people I love dearly get their throats slit by sin. Some cases, pretty literally. And they're going, oh no, it's just a little, hey, you know, I, I was in that relationship and it wasn't that bad. And that's not what you said to me the last time you spoke to me about it. Oh no, we're not going to fall into sin again. I'm like, okay, really? Well, what boundaries are you going to, oh, we don't need to set up boundaries. Things are cool. And I'm like, man, you are handing the knife to sin right now. Is that what you want to do? This is bloody and gross because, can I just say, sin is bloody and gross. You know why God hates it? Because it tears you away from him. And we're going to see that here in a second. I watched my mother die from cancer. 
from the moment that I was old enough to think, I watched her erode into um, this vibrant, fiery gal into this skeleton of a woman. I remember being nine, ten years old, carrying my mother, and I can't even imagine that. I mean, like at Ruthie's age, thinking I was carrying my mother from room to room because she was too weak to walk. I hated cancer because I saw what it did to her. And I can't even imagine how the Lord looks and sees our sin. That we go, it's just a little whatever. And God goes, no, it doesn't. It's tearing you away from me. And if we felt his pain in it, we'd probably never stop throwing up and we'd just break down right in front of everyone. But for this animal, it understood it probably more than we do. You know, the closest thing we're supposed to have to it today is communion. And we're about to have it in a handful of minutes now. But in the beginning of this, you need to recognize sin kills, it separates. And the first thing is the blood of this blood shows me, blood shows me there's a succumbing that's involved in it. Let's move on. But I want to ask even in the beginning, how's your confession life? When was the last time you honestly confessed anything to the Lord? Not, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, oh God, I, you know, forgive my sins. What if God said, which ones? Think that through. You watch a couple and they're like, hey, sorry. And a couple of the other person has a right to say, for what? Well, you know, for whatever it was that was, it's like, does that give you any hope? Sorry that, that you know, because they may be saying, sorry that you flipped out on me because you thought I did something wrong. You want to see healing happen in marriages and in friendships? Get specific about your confession and watch what happens. That whole, sorry that it was bad, does that mean anything to you? How much more so to the Lord who knows? Okay, then. The anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bulls, uh, so some of the bull's blood, and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger. In the blood. Oh, by the way, let me give you a couple quick verses and we'll move on to that. Um, one of my favorites, by the way, is Proverbs 28, 13, where it says, He who covers his own sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will have mercy. And it's one thing to just try to cover it up so nobody sees it. And can I let me warn you of this? If you're involved in any ministry at all and you live a life of covered sin, Ministry will become a joke to you and you will become bitter at God and you don't even know how it happened. And what will happen is because, because God has not nailed you, you'll think that this is a joke. I've watched that with pastors. I've watched that with guys serving and gals serving where they've, they've lived a life of pursuing sin, but nobody's really nailing them on it because nobody really kind of sees it and they're kind of covering it up. But in the end of it all, your heart, get, your heart gets hard and it becomes rotten and you think this whole thing's a joke because if God really were just, he would have blasted me by now. And it says, do not mistake God's mercy or patience as endorsement for your sin. It tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are some cultures that tolerate certain sins. I know within certain cultures, even in the church in that culture, sleeping around is sort of a small infraction. You're stealing someone's virtue. You're dishonoring another human being. And that's okay. That's not, you know, it's like getting a paper cut. How much of the toxin do you want to inject in your system? How much of the pathogen? That's like, well, because in the end of it all, there are two people that have infected each other with sin. And it needs to be dealt with. 
If it's something private and alone, it's still not when you're doing it before the Lord. So the anointed priest takes some of the bull's blood, he goes into the tabernacle of meeting, and he does something really odd with it. He dips his finger in the blood, which means he has to carry it in a bowl, and he dips the finger in the blood, he stands before the veil, and it says he takes it, and he goes like this, seven times, flick, 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 seven times, you have taken and you've gotten your, your hands dirty in the blood, and you've pointed every time you've done it at a veil that shows you that you are separate from the presence of God. Do you get it? This priest, and every priest would dream of the day where they could go into the Kohen, the, the Kadosh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies, and stand before the presence of the Lord. Now, God, you're, you're standing there, and there's blood on your hands that speaks of guilt, and you're going like this before this thing that is the clear testimony that there is something between you and God. And clearly, every time that happens, you're being reminded that sin separates you from a God who is perfect and holy. And he doesn't, <laughs> the most amazing part is, he does not want to be separate from you it's like if you ever blown in you've been in a household where doing that kind of thing people are like you disgust me get out of my face that is not the living god beloved because my living god's heart breaks because all he wants is to be with you down to his very spirit this is what i've learned if i didn't care about you you could annoy me you can irritate me you can anger me but you can't grieve me unless i love you And yet we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought that through? The Holy Spirit loves you so much that you could grieve him. God grieves over the sin of people. We see that in the story in the time of Noah. Isaiah 59.2 tells us that your iniquities have separated you from your God. Proverbs 15.29 says that the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. A very fascinating text to me is Jeremiah 5.25, where it tells us, by the way, that your iniquities have turned God's good things away and your sins have withheld good from you. And yet the call comes in James chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, to draw near, uh, verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God will always make the first move by the way he is, but you're drawing near to him. You'll discover he's already drawing near to you. But in a case like that, James was nailing a group of people that were sleeping with the world but pretending like they were totally pure and chaste to God. In the second case, as I do this, blood reminds me of the surrender. Because it was the surrender that I did to sin that separated me from him. And that animal had to surrender to me as I killed it. But I went and I said, and seven, of course, you're probably familiar with, speaks of a completion. It's like, this completely separates me from you. And yet as a Christian, nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So how does that work as a Christian now? You know what I've learned? That if you're turned towards the Lord and seeking him, his love is right on you to embrace. But if you turn and start running towards or running from him in your sin, he will ride your back. Oh, he's still not, you're still not separate from him. But in one case, you're going to enjoy it. And in the other case, you're going to get exhausted. Because God does want you miserable when you're running from him. Now, let's move on. And that's just our second the first thing we deal with is this issue that what blood does, or sorry, what, the, what the sin does and how it separates us. Now look at where we go from there. 
we have gone to this point now where we have pointed to this veil and right in front of us, in between us and the Holy of Holies is this veil and right in front of that in between us is this altar. And it says, Then the anointed priest, this is verse 5, shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger at the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And then from there it says in verse 7, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the sweet incense before the Lord, which is the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. Now please hear me, and I need to pick this up for the sake of time, but please do not lose me for a moment here. God offered something pretty profound here in this tabernacle for every priest. They drew lots, and every one of them got that chance sooner or later. They were all under some order. In other words, certain parts of the families that broke down and certain orders then came and they did. They were broken up into 24, so each one got a half a month. Now, what was to happen? Consider this. If we were walking here, and let's just say this is the, and it's roughly that, and we have the mock-up over there, but we didn't have time to put it up. Let's say that this is roughly the altar of incense. That would put us with a veil right here. And then on this side of it would be the Ark of the Covenant. This particular thing, listen to the way this was supposed to work. And the brilliance of God. There were only three pieces of furniture here, right? There was a menorah over here. That's the lampstand. And over here was the table of showbread to testify of God being the light of the world. And with Jesus being the light of the world and Jesus being the bread of life, God's provision and his guidance. Because without that light being on, you couldn't get anywhere. It's the only light in the whole building. Remember, it's a tent with four coverings on it. So it was going to be pitch black if if that wasn't lit. And we came over here. And we came over here and we put these coals in this incense. And we were in an enclosed tent, I want to remind you. And we prayed. Now, our prayer life at a moment like this was not, God, just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. This is not, dear Santa, oh, I mean the Lord. This was, and it wasn't like Jesus' name was like abracadabra, close the deal. When we did this, this was the image. If you couldn't hear what they were saying, I'd like you just to see what you would observe. What you observe here is that as he stood here with his hands raised, and his head, his head up, this would start to fill. And this would catch fire. And as this would catch fire, this beautiful smell that was unique to this, you could not make this mixture anywhere else or you were killed. And you could probably wear the fact that God did this really cool thing inside of you where there's a, a what do they call it, an olfactory association? Like there's a certain smell that brings you back to grandma's house. And it could be a nasty smell, right? Like mothballs or like old people sweat or Geritol or, you know, Ben Gay rub or whatever. But for you, you're like, oh, it smells like grandma. And it like makes you happy because that smell reminds you. God made sure that this smell was just for this. Does that make sense? Now, check this out. Just like your prayer is supposed to be the idea here, this thing would ignite and it would start to fume. And this particular thing sent lots of smoke up. So here you are with your hands like this. And as your hands are like this, think as you see the shape of this, as it was the case, this smoke would rise just like this, and it would get to the top of the tent, and then what would happen once it got to the top of the tent? It would start to come down. Because there's no place for it to go after that. Does that make sense? So as it would start to come down, the amount that was in here was supposed to be just enough so that it would hit the floor. So here I am like this. And I'm praying my prayers. And I'm praying these prayers. The smoke rises and it's this beautiful smell. And then it comes down. 
And I would start to think about how God, at the beginning of this book, how, at the end of Exodus, how he filled the tabernacle with his glory. But here's the crazy part. As this room got filled like this, if I prayed like I was supposed to, which included, by the way, three times as much listening as I did speak. Could you imagine that in any of our prayer lives? When I came out of this building, you would know that I was in there because I would smell like it. You would smell that prayer life on me because I would smell different. Because I was in there long enough to ruminate in those prayers. So the idea of it is, is that if I went like this and I waited till it filled the ceiling and that was my speaking, then I would sit there quietly as the smoke filled the rest of it so that I could receive. Does that make sense? Could you imagine if that was your prayer life? Now you know that that got wasted by the time of Jesus' birth because there was a guy who came in to burn incense and we know him as Zachariah or Zechariah. And the people marveled because he was in there so long. And you read the conversation that he has with this angel and it's like a two-minute conversation. I start to wonder, did they skimp out on the incense or did he just skimp out on the prayer? You know what I'm saying? It's like, wow, he's in there for like five minutes. That's a really long time for prayer. What about you? If you were like, you know what, let's get together, just a few of us, and pray. Have you ever had those times where somebody like so lit up on the Lord and we say terms like that? And then they're like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you're like, oh my goodness, really? Are you not willing to stare and wait until it fills you? Because sin does this to you. Because you had to take blood and you had to put it on the corners of this altar because you needed because you were reminded one more time that sin perverts my my prayer life. Hebrews tells us that we should be careful not to be hardened, our hearts be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what happens to us. What if we did it? Listen, when, you know, we'd have our Wednesday nights. And of course, if I'm, not, if I'm not home when the girls have their devotions and we have them every night, you know, I'm going to go home and if the girls are in bed, I'm just praying for them. And a long time ago, we would have our Wednesday nights back in the States. And I came home and I was so excited about the Lord one of those nights. And Tay was in her bunk bed laying there sleeping. And it was like, it was so regular that even though she would be sleeping, I would lay my hands on the bed. And the moment I begin to pray, she would in her sleep roll over and put her hand on mine. And the moment I said amen, she would roll back over and go back and just, and she never woke up. At least that I'm aware of. This particular night, I was just, you know, I just didn't want to stop praying for her. And I was thanking the Lord for who he had saved that night. And I was just going on and on and on because my heart was overflowing with a good theme. And all of a sudden, this person, and Tay was so young back then, and she just said, just say amen. I'm trying to sleep. Just say amen. I'm trying to sleep. I remember that. She said, just say amen. The other part was the part I heard in my head. But sometimes that's my prayer life. That's like a drive-thru, right? Hello, welcome to the Lord. How can I take your order, please? Um, I would like uh, some forgiveness and um, bless my day, please. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, I'm sorry, in Jesus' name. Okay, please pull forward in Jesus' name. What a prayer life I have. I prayed five times today. 
the word prayer, prosyukamai, literally means to cast yourself before God's good will. God's good will. That's what it means. Pros means towards, you means good, and kamai means intention or will. And when I first got saved, I used to think what that meant was trying to cast God beside my good intentions. And God's like, how are your intentions good compared to mine? And then I realized Moses was the one who came into the tabernacle, got the things and ran out to the people. But it was Joshua who stayed in the tabernacle. And he would be the one to bring him into the promised land. And I can see why. Do you have it? Because I guarantee you, when you are in prayer, as you should be, I'm going to smell it on you, and other people are too. And when I'm in that, you're going to smell it on me. I had two amazing weeks of prayer. You know what the Lord does sometimes? Is he forces those sessions at about 2 in the morning. Do you get that? Well, now these days it's 4, because sometimes I don't get to bed until 2. But he'll wake me up in the middle of the night. And at first I was like Mr. Grumpy Pants, right? And God's like, this is the only time when things are quiet enough for us to talk like this. And the moment I got that, I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Lord, I don't want to fill, I don't want to leave this situation until I'm full of you. Until I walk out smiling like you. Does that make sense? Well, let's get, let's move on this, but please hear me. You went and you took this thing and you went and you covered the corners of it. Here's the most interesting thing. When it gets really hot again, because this thing has the corners like that with gold, it will actually burn off the blood so it won't be there forever. Just there long enough for you to know that particular prayer time. But once that incense got hit the next time, it'll actually burn it off the sides. But that blood testifies, by the way, of sacrifice. That there was a sacrifice that put me here. Okay, last couple things. Will you and then pray with me? And you know I'd love to be here forever. And I just, I had a class I would teach for three hours straight. So I knew I was praying for you guys already. Listen, they'll take some of, you say, they'll take from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, all the fat and the kidneys and all this. And you go, that sounds a lot like the peace offering. He goes, that's funny because that's what he says in verse 10, that it was taken from the bull sacrifice of the peace offering, just as it was. And I realized this is important because God wants to make sure you realize the reason we are seeking him in prayer isn't just so that we could stop feeling bad. It's so that we could be restored to a right relationship with him. And please hear me, there are many people who normally, caught in the middle of their sin, hate the consequences of their sin, but they don't hate their sin. Like they hate the earthly consequences. I hate this sin because I got a warrant out for my arrest. I hate this sin because my girlfriend hates me, because my kids don't respect me anymore. I hate this sin because, in the end of it all, I lost all favor with anyone because of this stupid thing that I've done. The problem is, if all you hate are the earthly consequences for it, the moment those lessen, you'll go back into that sin just as quickly. As a couple, you fall into the sin. A man goes back into internet pornography. A girl goes back into the gossip thing or that separation of trying to put a us and them in some situation where it should never be. And all of a sudden, it's gossip and it's backbiting and all of this. And then you realize you're losing friends and you're like, oh God, please forgive me for whatever it is. And God's like, let's go beyond the whatever it is. You're right, God. I am rumoring. I am backbiting. I am dividing. And now you're hearing yourself admit it, which needs to happen in a moment like that. And then, and then with that, all of a sudden you're like, God, please. And, but please take this away because I don't want that person to hate me. And then he does out of kindness and the person stops hating and then you go back to backbiting because you really didn't hate the sin. You just hated the earthly consequences. Does that make sense? That's the guy who says, I'll give my life to Jesus as long as my girlfriend isn't pregnant. 
And then it turns out she isn't. And of course, he's not going to be back with the Lord because this was a this was a buyout. This was a deal to make. Please hear me in this. God wants us to deal with our sin because he wants to be reconciled to us. That's why. And he does. it's like all that misery and guilt and all those feelings, please hear me, beloved, are just to remind us that something's not right. If you will, there are symptoms that tell you something in the body's not right so it can get dealt with. And God says, let's deal with the, the cause of it. And the cause is sin. You could try to remove all the symptoms, but you're medicating the wrong thing. You could have surgery and have it removed completely, or you could just try to remove the symptoms. Oh God, keep me from feeling guilty and don't let me feel bad about myself and help me. Please hear me on this. Don't play this game with me, you know, and where it's like, you know what? It's just about self-esteem. Look at, can I just say, we need to see ourselves in Christ, not see ourselves. Because you could try to feel good about yourself all you want. But if you don't, if you feel good about yourself outside of Christ, you are numbing yourself from the conviction of the Holy Spirit that says, get right with the living God. Someone's like, you're trying to make me feel guilty. And my question normally is, well, are you guilty? Well, that doesn't matter. If you're guilty, you should feel guilty. And the only reason the Holy Spirit does that is so that you can get it dealt with. He's like, look at this. It's the, the doctor saying, does this hurt? And you're like, ow, you're so mean to do that. He's like, no, that tells me that that's, there's a problem there. He does it because he loves you. So finally, after all of that, and sin, by the way, tells me, by the way, this blood shows me that, that we had to seek something to have, it, to have it sacrifice. And I look at this and I start to realize, even in this peace offering, man, am I... Am I doing this because what I really want is just not to feel bad anymore, not to feel uncomfortable, or do I really want to be right with you? And I realize that's what this is all about. Because my God was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Jesus was paying the price to restore us. That's the point. Finally, look at verses 11 and 12, and then we'll just cap it up with the other things in their small variations. The bull's hide in its flesh, its head and its legs and its entrails and the awful. And what's awful again? Can you believe you said that word in church? Um, I didn't. I know, okay, I did earlier. Um, the whole bull you carry outside of the camp in a clean place. The ashes are poured out and burned on the wood, well, burned on wood with fire. So all that's left are ashes, which of course then blow away so you can't see them anymore. The last thing you deal with is the flesh. Did you notice that? He even calls it that. He says in verse 11, now I want you to go and take the flesh and get it out of the camp. I don't want the flesh in the camp at all. Get it out and burn it. Get it over with. We took this bull, we killed this bull, we took the blood and we testified this separates us from you, from us and it really funkies out my, my prayer life. And then as that's the case, and I'm like, God, restore me to a right place with you. God, restore my prayer life to one that's intimate dialogue. And then I'm going to go back out from this point. I'm going to start saying, no, wait a minute. And then I start looking and I realize there's a peace offering that needs to be made because this is, this is all about me being right with you. And then it's like, God, I don't want this to happen again, so slay the flesh. I don't want that flesh me first attitude to be any more in my life, in my prayer life, in my view of you, in my view of church, in my view of this camp right now. Get the flesh out of this camp and get rid of it for good. Does that make sense? And there are churches out there where you can go and the whole thing's flesh fest. And all that means is you first fest. Think about it. 
So it's like, hey, look, God wants to bless you and you just tell God what you want and he's like the slot machine. As long as you say Jesus' name, you're going to get three, whatever they are, liberty bells. Or and, you know, and you're just like looking for it. All right, God, bless me. And oh, this is my hour and this is my breakthrough and this is my time. This is my season and my thing. And by the time you're done, you walked out telling God everything that was right and somehow you still tried to call him Lord. And he's like, I'm master, not master card. It's that simple. Or we get into a place and it's, and it's charismatic. And I'm not saying every charismatic church is like this, but what happens is we have to prove we're more spiritual than the person next to us. So the person next to us has an encounter and they start to cry because they are overwhelmed with the goodness of God. And we look and go, that's the move of God. And they're kind of quietly, and you just start going, because <laughs> that's more. Now look at someone can have a, a genuine experience with God. There are others that are looking, oh, I don't know. And then the person next to you goes, oh, that's what it is. And then they start going, ah! <laughs> and by the time you're at the end of the row, that person is really going to win. And now nothing gets done. Because it was me first, baby. We come here to die and celebrate the one who rose from the dead. Because if we die, we'll actually serve each other. Could you imagine that? Wouldn't that be awesome? Okay, last thing. Please hear me on all this because then we'll, we'll close it up with a couple of thoughts. Look at it. And then we went to the others. And notice the order he put this in, by the way. He went from the priest. That was the first. Let's deal with that. That's our base for everything is this priest. And then the congregation whom he holds the rulers uh, um, responsible for. And then, the, and then the, um, and the, the elders. And then the ruler. And then finally the individuals by themselves. And I look at this and I realize how important it was he says to the congregation, the people as a nation. Well, what if they kind of wake up and realize, whoa, we've done something wrong. And that's right through scripture. First Kings 8 speaks of that. Second Chronicles 34. Solomon says, hey, if we finally come to ourselves and realize we've done something wrong, well, then we should do something about it. In the case of Josiah, where we realize in a case like that, where, where he realizes the, they're cleaning out the temple and they realize they get the, the scroll back and they start reading. Now, they're like, we need to get back to the Bible or we need to get back to God. And God lovingly says, and let's get back to my book. And they open up the book and they go, there's a lot of this stuff we haven't done. And here's the strange thing. Please hear me. The thing that they hadn't done was celebrate. They're like, we need to get back and beat our breasts and repent and tell God we're sorry. And, and that's good, but it's like they open up the school and it's like, there's more to this walk with God than just being sorry about your sin. He's like, what about those times when we celebrate? And they're like, well, we haven't done this. We haven't celebrated the redemption out of the land of slavery. <coughs> this is what we're missing, you guys. Was that the lamb was slaughtered for us so we could go free. God, forgive us. And the whole thing turns into that. And I realize that happens in Ezra 10. That happens in Nehemiah 9. And I realize that the people, sometimes we realize as a nation, we come and we go, oh my goodness, Lord, we've been so negligent to your word, we don't even realize how much wrong we're doing. And then I realize that the rulers are told the same thing with that, where they offer as well then their sacrifices and I realize even in that, David says that in Psalm 32, when he says, I acknowledge my sin and my iniquity I have not hidden. David was king. Daniel stood as a ruler in that sense in Daniel 9 when he confessed his sins and the sins of the people. And by the way, a real ruler that's going to represent you should never think that your sins are your sins exclusively. Their sins come in a man, which means he has to deal with them too. And finally, the common people. And what I found really interesting about the common people is it was the one uniquely where you sacrificed the female. And I realized your females were the bigger issue because your females were your fruitfulness among your flocks. No matter how many men you have, they can't have babies. 
But your girls, your female flock, were the ones that produced your future in regards to your flock. Does that make sense? And understand God says, let's get right down to you just individually. I want you to realize sin separates. I've paid the price. But you keep on sin. You will not be fruitful like I've called you to. You'll feel alone and isolated. And I realized that's why it was so profound in Matthew 3 when people came to John the Baptist, individuals confessing their sin. These were Jewish people. They were confessing because they were bearing the fruit of death. Please hear me in this chapter as we pray now. This ends with this. In every one of these cases, you dealt with sin in this simple sense. You, first of all, admitted that you were a sinner and that you admitted that something else was going to die in your place that was innocent and perfect and pure and you offered that purity before God. But when you did, you realized, I need you to restore more than just my place with you. But that's the fundamental of it because it begins and ends with that. But in between that, my prayer life, the way that I handle things, the way that I think, the way that I value, all of that gets wonky the moment that I start chasing after these sins and now I need you to restore me in every area. And that starts with me being honest to say, you know what, I'm, this isn't just a little problem. This is a really serious terminal issue that I need you to deal with. So let me ask you something. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? You realize that's the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross. Was our perfect sin, God had made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him, it tells us in Second Corinthians 5. God took his only begotten son because he was the only one qualified to actually take the payments for all mankind because he's perfect and pure. And he volunteered to do so. And then took your sins upon him. So let me ask you something. Have you accepted that gift? Or are you still trying to represent yourself and still think you've got something else perfect to offer God? Because what you're doing is you're looking in the face of the slaughtered son of the son of God. And you're looking at the one who bled and died on a cross whose blood is the testimony we read even as we sing. And you stare in the face of that one and say, got anything else? Oh, I'd rather trust my own works. When somebody was willing to do that much for you? And they're like, you're just trying to push me. I am because I know the forgiveness of Christ and I know the freedom that comes with it. Why would you say no to that? So as we pray, I'm going to give you the opportunity to accept this gift of Jesus. And it starts with confessing in this way, it tells us. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. He wants to save you from that separation from him. Have you said yes? If you have said yes, let me ask you, where are you at today? How's your prayer life? Is it that place where it fills the room again? And your whole spirit smells like the sweet incense? Or is it the drive through where the only thing you smell is exhaust? God wants to change that because he wants to be with you more than just for the drive through That's why I think he tells us to pray without ceasing. He wants you always smelling like that. And by the way, even as David says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. And once you realize you've been forgiven much, Jesus says you'll love much. You pray with me. Lord, I know that we've gone late today. Well, we started a bit late, but I just want to thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you. And Lord, I just pray today as we consider what you've shown us here in this particular um, chapter, how you've shown us, Lord, that sin is so much more than just a little infraction. This is a capital punishment. 
This is a capital crime. Because our sin makes us guilty of the blood of Jesus. But that's the same blood that is offered at our acceptance to wash us clean of the very crimes we've committed. And so, Lord, I just pray today for every person here. I want to start, Lord, with every believer, myself included, Lord, that our prayer life be so much more than a quick tossing out of requests before a God that desires for us to light incense and come out of the room smelling like it. And I pray today, Lord, for every one of us that you would teach us how to listen to you and not just talk at you. Make it the dialogue you intended. But Lord, as we deal with that, even right now, if there be any in this room who have not accepted your gift or they're not sure if they've ever accepted the gift of your son dying on behalf of them, then right now is the time. Look, I'm going to ask you to do something brave. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm just going to say, if if you are not sure and you know today that you would like to accept the gift of Jesus, I'm not asking you to join our church. We don't have a membership. I'm not asking you to shave your head and sell flowers at the airport. I'm asking, do you want to accept God's forgiveness, his perfection on your behalf? If so, I would like to pray with you. Quite simply, I'm not going to call you out and embarrass you. I'm simply going to invite you right now and pray a prayer that I would invite you to pray with me. Right where you're at, right where I'm at. But for that to happen, I would need prompting to know that there is a need for that. So if that's you right now as the Holy Spirit's working on your heart, just get confident and clear eye contact with me right now. What you're saying is, I need that prayer right now. I would like to pray that prayer right now. I see you. Anyone else today? I see you. God bless you, sister. Anyone else here today? Anyone else? All right, for you, have uh, Raise your head and anyone else in this room would like to pray along. Pray this prayer with me. God in heaven, I do confess to you I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin separates me from you. And because my sin separates me from you, something must be done. But I believe that you sent your... Son, your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross so that all of my sins could be punished on Him. And He died there just like your Scripture promised, was buried and rose again just like your Scripture promised. And I accept the gift of Jesus as my payment, the one I lay my hands on and confess my sins upon so that He Himself died on my st- in my stead. And I say, yes to Jesus, have me now. Wash me clean in the blood of Christ and make me yours completely. As I am yours, and even as you promised, you would remove my sins. You would cover them, forgive them, more than just make it so that I can't necessarily see them, but literally lift them off and remove them completely. Do that now, I pray. And develop a relationship between me and you that is vibrant and intimate and close like you created me to be and to have with you. So I give myself to you now and accept the gift of Jesus, declaring him as my Savior and as my Lord. I'm yours now in Jesus' name. And again, I simply ask for you to affirm that by saying, Amen.